Hi, and welcome to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I'm your host, Steve Beeson. The goal of this podcast is to demystify therapy, what can happen in therapy, and the wide array of conversations you can have in therapy. I also talk to guests about therapy, their experience with therapy, and how psychology is present in many places in their lives. I also share personal stories. So please join me on this journey about therapy. Hi, and welcome to episode 72 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I am Steve Beeson. If you haven't listened to episode 71 yet, please do so. A review a chapter in my book about the unique challenges of first responders. Talk about different things, including stigma, so I hope you go and listen to it. But episode 72 is with three, yes, three returning guests. The first one is Bill Dwinnells. Bill Dwinnells is someone I worked with on a crisis team years ago. He is someone who is currently still working in what we call emergency services now. And always happy to have Bill on. Kara Terrell actually works out of my office and is an amazing counselor and really enjoy talking to her generally outside of work. But we've done two shows with Bill too and couldn't wait to have her on again. And we added Susan Rogendorf. I think that you remember Susan from episode 58. And Susan works with folks living with anxiety in her LGBTQIA2S community. And also with first responders who grapple with anxiety as well as other stuff in regards to the work that they do. And her podcast, which I will be hopefully a guest again very soon, is The Rules. And I highly encourage you to go listen to that too. But here is the interview. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 72 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. This is also YouTube channel number 16, and you're going to recognize all these faces, but we've never actually all talked together. You've got Karen Terrell and Bill Dwinnells. They've been on episode 21 and 55, and I'm going to go with YouTube channel, uh, the episode five. So we've been on there a few times. So welcome, Bill and Kara. Yeah. And then Susan Rogendorf is someone who came on on episode 58, YouTube, cha- YouTube episode number eight. And uh, Susan is here also. Hey there. And I wanted to bring all of us together because we have something in common. We all worked in the, well, sorry, Bill, you're still working in it, but we all worked in emergency services. I was actually, I had a friend of mine who worked actually in New York City doing this, but she was unable to join us. So it was a little too bad because that would have been fun too to have her point of view. But in case I've sent everyone back to the episodes and all that, but I would love for you guys to tell a little bit about yourself. So let's start with you, Susan. My name is Susan Rogendorf. I am a licensed mental health counselor for Iowa and a licensed clinical professional counselor for Illinois. I have my own practice, Copel Counseling, and I am part of a collective called the Med Therapy Collective. I was in the ER, in the Crisis Stabilization Unit in Illinois for seven, eight years, and then decided I need to go into private practice before I flamed out. Well, I'm happy that you're still very sane. I'm just joking. <laughs> A matter of point of view. <laughs> Bill, how about you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Bill Dwinnells. You can find me at billdwinnells.com. I uh, do maintain a private practice off to the side. I've been involved in emergency services in some way, shape, or form for um, the last 26 years, and I'm still involved. 
I do run one of the local crisis teams. Involved in that is also a crisis stabilization unit. The software you developed? Oh, yeah. And the software, I had developed some software to help with the tracking of emergency service cases. That can be found at 508tech.com. That's now being used by multiple crisis teams across uh, Massachusetts and soon to have a couple more added to it. Thanks for having me. And how about you, Kara? I am Kara Terrell, and I've been lucky enough to work with both Steve and Bill for many years and glad to meet Sue. I had left agency work and community work in 2021, so more recently, and did start my own private practice. I'm taking clients, and I see people in person right now in telehealth. Some of my specialties are, are a little unique. I had some experience with working with teens that have Tourette syndrome or PANs or PANDAS, which is somewhat unknown in the, in the school system or the agencies, and it's very hard to find a clinician for that work with seniors or elderly caregivers and have had some work with hoarding. I've been on a hoarding task force in the community. So those things have helped me. And to just specify, you're not hoarding stuff. You're helping people with hoarding issues. I am helping. Yes. I will help people with hoarding disorder, people that are living with people that are hoarding or cluttering. And it's pretty an intricate disorder and, and people really struggle with it in the community. And there's a lot of shame-based experience with it as well but i myself am not a hoarder okay we'll talk about after the show um (laughs) i it's interesting because i was thinking about when i've had all of you on the show before and i've certainly talked to susan on her podcast and i'm so excited because back uh, going in december i'm going to do it again can't wait Mm -hmm. to do that but one that's gonna be a good time oh we're gonna have a great time the thing that i realized though is that we've all done crisis work but i don't have a clue how you started So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off with my story and then I can turn to you guys. But for me, it was totally accidental because I came from Canada to come and work in the United States and Massachusetts. And I was working with people with developmental disabilities, which was not the deal I thought I was getting when I first moved here. I'm going to leave it as vague as I can. There was issues at my program and then the crisis work came up and they wanted someone with developmental disability experience And I told them I was bilingual, well, French, but they didn't know that. So I started working as triage on the overnight for many, many years. And I just developed a passion from there and really enjoyed it for 15 or so years. So that's how I actually started with crisis work. So I would like to turn that question to you guys. I'm going to go into reverse this time. I started with Susan, so I'm going to start with Kara this time. Okay. Um, I was actually trying to... I'm older, so I, I have a Rolodex of jobs that I've had in the past. But I think when I started, I loved crisis right away. Of course, we, we kind of referenced that before we started, that kind of excitement, that fast-paced environment. I liked working with lots of different agencies, the police, the fire department, all those things. So I think it really started. I did an internship in college. I went to St. Anselm College for undergrad. And I did an internship with Women's Protective Services. So I was trained as a domestic violence counselor. I did a rape crisis line. So I started there and then ended up with in elder protective services. So I investigated elderly abuse for probably three or four years. And then I was also on the best team, which is the Boston Emergency Services team for my internship for my master's. So again, I kept, I kind of kept going back to it. You know, it's like the mob, they just keep 
Well, they pull you back every time. So <laughs> once you get a taste of it, you kind of love it. And I was young. I was very energetic. I was really looking for a lot of experience. And I would say to anybody starting out, start out in crisis because you're going to learn almost everything. And then I ended up with you guys at Advocates, worked there for 15 years and then worked for the town, you know, running their food pantry and some of the community services there. Yeah. And I, it's interesting because Susan on a separate podcast and separate conversation, she asked about why do people not recommend emergency service work? And then I always go in my head, I'm the first, I tell people start there. That's the best place to start, but that's just me. So thank you, Kara. And Bill, how did you start and stay stuck? And I mean, enjoy it there. <laughs> it was really systematic, bad life choices. <laughs> <laughs> over and over. Over and over again. No, I mean, I had, I think I got my, well, my first taste of any kind of emergency work is I had been working as a call member on um, the local fire department. Uh, an ambulance team. So that kind of got the blood racing. It was fantastic. Met, met, still know a bunch of great guys uh, and gals, but it wasn't quite for me. But while I was in grad school, I did get a part-time job working for one of the local emergency service teams. And the only thing I could say is for whatever reason, that just clicked. And then once I got my degree, I went into being the clinician going out at the time, most of the stuff we did was in the ED, and then slowly it started branching out into community stuff. And then eventually we worked into putting clinicians into the cruisers, you know, with the police officers, which once that happened, I think that that's what really sunk the hooks in me. I was all good with that. And since that time, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of emergency service teams across the state probably at least a half dozen, if not more, different police departments, helping them set up their dual, what in Massachusetts anyways, is called co-response, a dual response. It's given me the opportunity to present at statewide meetings on how clinicians can or should be used in conjunction with police officers. It's just kind of snowballed you know, to the point where I just, I never got out. <laughs> The challenges were always there, so I just kind of kept rolling with them because I do think it's 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 very needed. I think there's a very la serious lack of knowledge as far as uh, mental health goes and how it permeates all segments of society. Well, can you blink twice if you just feel stuck there? I know people in listening to the podcast <laughs> will not know, but the one, they'll have to go to YouTube to see if you blinked or not. Uh, all right. I'm not telling anyone what he did. But we'll call nine one one later. Eight one one. Oh, eight one one. We'll bring that up too, actually. Yeah. But thank you, appreciate it, Bill. How about you, Susan? Well, unlike y'all youngsters, I'm fifty five and I got started late in this game. Decided I didn't want to be an office manager for the rest of my life after twenty years of it. I was bored being a calendar monkey, so I went back to school to do therapy, to do counseling, and. I got put actually into the ER during my practicum by the director of outpatient services at that time. And I actually fell in with a guy named Dan Scritchfield, who has actually, he is the OG of crisis in our emergency department where I was at, at the hospital. 
And we get along really well. And I really am so grateful. He was my person to follow, my mentor. And I just, I fell in love with it. You know, it was like detective work and I love that stuff. So that's what I started. I was in my 43, 42, something like that. When I started that, finished up my schooling and I decided that I wanted to go back to the ER because even though with my practicum, I had done several different things, you know, you, you go and you do the in session, you do group. Group was interesting, but it was a lot of dynamic going on there. And I didn't want to ride herd on all that energy. So I decided that I didn't want to do that. So decided to go back into ER work. They had a position open in the crisis stabilization unit and just sort of fell into it. And of course, you know, Dan was still there. So that and several other persons, Chris Jantz, uh, Bill Levy, they were also my mentors while I was there. Chris and Bill have gone on to do other things, but as far as I know, Dan is still OG of the uh, CSGO. So that's kind of how I got onto it. And we talked before about being a cortisol junkie. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I miss it. I, I do miss that part of it. I don't miss the other stuff that you know was threatening to flame me out, but that's that's kind of how I got into it. So are we just all cortisol junkies? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of have I, to be. I want to say what I I took what Susan. I think she really defined something that I really love about working the year. Like you said, when a case would come in, you you do some investig. I like that investigative piece of it. Calling the police to get more information, finding out about who the collaterals are. Has this person been seen before? I'm going to talk to the doctor to get the medical, the nurse to get the vitals. I'm going to talk to everybody else so that I could put this together in a cohesive, you know, report, which we're required to do, but it also helps for continuity of care. But I just really like, I think that's how my mind organizes itself. And I think I lend that partly to that type of a job where now I hear people struggle with writing progress notes. And I'm thinking I could blast out a 12 page, like piece of paper while I'm on the phone to the insurance company, talking to someone in the back. And getting the medical, you know, I, I had that skill set specifically because of that type of job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And when you guys were talking in your previous episodes about filling out those six reams of paperwork, yeah. it was getting even more ridiculous when I left in February this year. Just more and more paperwork. Now, I most people understand, at least those of us that work in that, uh, that arena, is that a lot of our funding, we have to document the crap out of things. Right. That's why we have so much paperwork. But it, it just got to the point of ridiculousness where I'm spending more time on my paperwork than I am with my patient. That was just stupid. But part of it that I did like was being able to engage with my patient. But like you said, Kara, is that investigative part of it, just talking to everybody, getting information, and then being able to pull these strings together and go, that, no, that doesn't sound right. What do you mean? Yeah, you're fine. They pulled you off a bridge. No, you're not all right. We're going to have a conversation about what this means between voluntary and involuntary now. So, you know, it's just, that was the exciting part. I think that's where the the adrenaline comes in and you're getting excited. Part of it too was when I would walk into the unit, at the beginning at least, and I'd see the board and I'd see how many of them were for us. And I was excited and I wanted to dig in. Of course, by year six or seven, I'm like, oh God, <laughs> you know, especially when you're the only crisis clinician on duty, you're responsible for your four campuses of your hospital system and the five counties in the Eastern Iowa hospital ER rooms. At that point, you're like, oh, no, don't want to do this anymore. So I think at a certain point, you're right. I think you said it was one to two years, one to three years that people are in crisis work. Normal people. Uh, uh, the, the, the official average is a year. 
And here we are, us rep reprobates, you know, although Bill is still smoking away. He's the OG away. of our, uh, our division. Right. <laughs> Probably so, bringing but, up the curve. Yeah, so. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it's interesting. Um, you start off and I wasn't young, but I was still excited about it. But you're right, that investigative part of it was really the big draw for me getting into it. And, yeah, and I still sometimes look at cases like that not that they're cases, but clients that I'm seeing, yes. I can gather a lot of information very quickly to kind of formulate. And, you know, and we were asked to do diagnosis very quickly, obviously, mm -hmm. sometimes within an hour. Yeah. So I use some of that skill set and then have the, I guess, the luxury now to have a little more flexibility and room. And mm -hmm. But but that that background really still assists me in, to this day. Oh, I agree. hundred percent. That's in fact, I have to hold back sometimes yeah. that I can't just, I can do more. <laughs> yeah. I, can do more <laughs> I got several right. more sessions. I can figure some more things out. Yeah. Not 15 minutes. Right. Yep. So what keeps you going, Bill? What keeps me going? What keep going back to emergency services? You're not even going back. You never left. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like I said, a Steve, very supportive wife. Yeah. And a very Good. damaged mind. <laughs> I just, no, but you I, have a personality I, for it too, because you have a chill personality, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly helps. I try not to let anything get to me too much. But I, I mean, you know, I joke with my coworkers all the time that I've just been doing this stuff for too long. I'm too damaged to do anything else. And some of it's tongue in cheek, but some of it's true. I mean, Anything I try to do after this is going to seem very boring, but, you know, by comparison, you know, even with some of the, you know, the outpatient stuff by comparison, it's like, oh, okay, well this, this should be easy, you know, or easier to deal with. And um, at this point, I think doing some of the outpatient stuff probably is what saved me because while those folks are, are certainly having problems, their problems are not as intense or as immediate as the folks I'm used to dealing with. So it's almost like I can take a little bit more. Well, like you were saying, I could take a little bit more time to formulate a really good solid plan as to how to help these people move forward. But I really have trouble seeing myself doing too much, too much of anything else. You know, I think I'm always going to be involved in emergency services in some way, shape or form. I'd say until I retire, but I'm not going to retire. Who am I kidding? Yeah. I don't think any of us are going to retire, <laughs> to be honest with mean? you. Yeah, and, I, and, and yeah. Bill, I'm going to give you props that you don't give yourself. I think you became the leader that you wanted to see and, and what we were lacking when we were all kind of in the, we were all in the front lines. I think you became yeah. the leader that we wished we would had. And now the your clinicians have somebody that kind of was there from the bottom up and has an understanding of how it works. And that makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a big difference because I have seen agencies that don't promote from within. And they just bring, I've seen people be brought in who have no background in emergency services. And quite frankly, the frontline clinicians pick up on that real fast. It usually doesn't go well. You know, I, I do think one of the, one of the big things I got going for me, as soon as they talk to me, they know I've got, you know, the street cred, you know, I'm, I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done that I haven't done myself and in possibly in weirder circumstances but we can all talk about it. So, I mean, I, I do think that's definitely helpful as I, I do get a lot of respect just walking in the door because they know, you know, if they know my history. I was going to say, are you 
kidding me? I would have killed for someone like you, Bill, as leadership. Because we, <laughs> no, I'm being totally serious because we would have people that were promoted from other areas yeah. to come in and be our managers or be our leads. And it's like all of us, even if we weren't OG, we are all looking at you. Oh, you knew in two no, seconds. Who are you? <laughs> yeah. And they're trying to tell you how to do your job. It's like, have you spent time with us? Because yeah. that was one thing that I kept bringing up over and over is like, if you're not part of our world, then you should be staying at least a couple of hours every shift yeah. throughout the week. So you understand, including weekends and overnights. Yeah. So you understand how this machine runs and what we have to deal with. How it smells. Yeah. Among other things. How it yeah. feels. How yeah. you know, there's so many experiences that you don't have unless you're really doing it, like you said. And I yeah. want to say I did kill to get Bill for my supervisor. When I, I I wasn't getting the leadership I needed, and I said I I want Bill to be my supervisor. We were all at advocates, and they said, but he's on the night shift. I said I don't care. I'll come here in the middle of the night. I don't care. I know no one else is gonna <laughs> smart woman, you know, because it's it's hard. Because I don't know about y'all, but in my capacity as part of the our crew, we were also responsible for telehealth in addition to people rolling into our ER physically. So not only are we doing our physical location, but we have our three campuses that were virtual. And then we acquired five counties of ERs doing virtual. And then if we couldn't do it virtual because of whatever laws dictated we couldn't do so, like with minors, we had to go to another campus to do it in person, leaving our original campus and then come back. And when you're shorthanded, and if you've got a leader who has no idea how that runs, that, that sets it up, like you said, Bill, walking on to the unit, knowing somebody like yourself with the background that you had, mad respect immediately. And you would get it when we go, oh, you know, I got to go over there again. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Get your ass over there take care of it. We'll take care of it when you get back. That I would respect versus someone going, well, you know, it's just something right. to do. It's protocol. It's like, eh, there's your protocol. I'm over this, right? There's better ways to do this. and You need to start listening to us. And Susan, when we first started, we used to have to go to homes, people's homes. Mm -hmm. We went to you know facilities. We went to ZCF. I remember going to Medfield State in the middle of the night. So scary. And this is literally when it's abandoned. And yep. they had redone the juvie hall there. And I'm like knocking on the door, looking around and thinking. Westboro, by the way. Westboro. But oh, yes, Westboro. And I think I've been to Medfield for something else. But yes. I've been to both, yeah. actually. But how scary was it? Like you're saying, it, it, there's safety issues, there's um, flexibility, there's, you know, transportation, you have to get there. How do you get there? How do you, you know, eat in between? Are you allowed to go to the bathroom? You know, mm -hmm. all these things that complicate it. Yeah. But, and so I'm going to stop for a second and kind of turn to Bill, too, because you talked about the leadership stuff that Bill brought. Obviously, I worked with Bill on the overnight and always enjoyed having him there when I worked with him. What I mean, I'm turning to Bill, but I know obviously Susan and Kara have mentioned a few things. What's a good leader in an emergency service program? I think it's something that, you know, Kara hit upon. It, it, it's got to be somebody who, who's not going to react to what's being put in front of them. Even if it's something funny, horrible, or whatever, because I mean, it, it could be anywhere on the gamut. But you need to be able to put the shock and awe of it to, to the side and really think through what is it that needs to happen right now. It doesn't even have to be a perfect solution. It just has to be one that keeps everybody safe and at least moves the client, patient, consumer, whatever word we're using today for 
whatever it is that moves them in a positive direction. It doesn't have to bring about resolution, but it has to be something that the, the clinician involved can trust, that management can back up, and moves the person in a positive direction. And as long as everybody's safe, then to be honest, we've done our job. Because if there needs to be follow-up tomorrow, then we'll do follow-up tomorrow. But the big question is, you know, can you offer leadership that protects everybody, staff, the client, you know, and honestly, the uh, agency? Because, you know, as a manager, that's part of my job, too, is to protect the agency. How do I protect all of these people simultaneously? Even if you want to second guess my clinical decision later, that's fine. But at the end of the day, we all go home. You know, that's that's kind of my that's my philosophy. At the end of the day, I want everyone to go home with 10 fingers and 10 toes, just like they arrived. I agree. Well, yeah. And and I think that, you know, Susan and Kara, you've talked about what, what was missing in leadership, including people who've been there, done that. What else, according to you guys, would make a good leadership in the emergency services? Because the one thing I want to add that I always like, we talked about like someone who's been there, done that. Another person who can take something that's really difficult and go, hey, it's just part of the, the, what we do here. Don't worry. And not not we're not going to worry, but it just makes it so much easier than like, oh, my God, there's three people in three different ERs. What are we going to do? Those yeah. people I, they, I disliked tremendously in when I, was, where I had leadership. Hey, Steve, yeah. we're kind of screwed. You're the only guy and there's three people in three different ERs. Go with one at a time. If we can get you some help, we'll get it. If yeah. not, and, and those are the leaders that I truly enjoy. But I'll turn to you, Susan or Kara, whoever wants to go first in regards to that. I, I agree with Steve and I agree with Bill. I think that what I really appreciated was when I had a supervisor that validated that we're coming with a lot of experience. Even if you're new, you still have, you've gone through a master's program. You hopefully have been trained. I wasn't, but hopefully you have some training, but you have some ability to be taught and learn and have something that you're coming with. And like you said, it might not be the right disposition in the moment. And that's fine. The supervisor could correct you, ask you questions, decide something different, but you're talking to a high level of a person that has a high level of education and usually some familiarity with some mental health issues. So I, I like, I appreciate someone who's allowing someone to learn and grow as they're also, you know, trying things out. And I think validating that they have some knowledge and that they can you know, be confident with it. I have to agree. Advocating for your clinicians that are out on the ground and out in the field. Absolutely. That was often lacking. We also were responsible for doing in-house evaluation sometimes if the psychiatrist couldn't get there. And it's just, and it, and of course the units are all up in arms because they're not a psychiatric unit. And if someone is in need of psychiatric services, then they're freaking out because they've got security up there. Somebody's sitting on the patient and everything else is going on. And then they're upset with you because you're not up there pronto. And it's like, I have four people ahead of you. <laughs> it's going to be at least four hours. But then you've got your leadership who's never been a part of this going, you should probably go up there and take care of them. Great. Who are you going to bring in to take care of these fours that I've got two physicians, two PAs and an NP that are screaming up my skirt because they need to be taken care of. But we got one of them that's tearing apart one of the rooms because they really need some help. Right. You want collaboration. I think, you know, what you said, Bill, it is about keeping people safe. Absolutely. Never felt that. 
and like you said, Kara, it's about being advocated for. It's all of those things that all of y'all have said that was missing. And I, and I know it contributed to my flaming out at the end and saying, I've got to get out of here before I really hate everything that I've done here, which is a shame because I love the work that I did there. Did not love the BS behind it. Did not like the lack of leadership. Didn't like the way we were thought of as secondary citizens. Didn't like the fact no one treated us as actual providers. I'm like, hello, I have an MPI. Government seems to think I am, so maybe come on board. So all of what you have said has been missing in my experiences, and yet I still love the work. So I don't know if that answered your question for you, Steve. Bill, you wanted to add something. It actually did, but I see Bill wanted to say something. Well, I I was going to say the I've worked with agencies that their executive leadership had absolutely no experience doing emergency services whatsoever. And the way I explained it to them is, you need to understand that your emergency service team is basically like your SEAL Team 6, okay? Because we handle what no one else in the agency can handle. There was one agency I worked with that they would send you to a safety training class, and you go through the whole safety training class, and at the very end, it says, if none of this works, call emergency services. (laughs) Like, okay, well, we are. We, I, I am us. emergency service. I always loved when a psychiatrist left that if you have an emergency, as you're calling them, call 872 333, which is our yeah. number. Yeah. Everybody knows. And I'm like, wait, who are we supposed to call? Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, we're your last line of defense. And okay, that's fine. I, I get it. I understood that when I signed up for the job. But then if you have no other answers, why are you criticizing the way I did it? Right. You're not or, offering support. Yeah, you're I mean, not offering really support. You're telling support. me just fix this. Yeah. I don't need a I don't need a fing pizza. What I need is another staff member. I need some yeah. additional resources here. I need something to help me out as an overnight clinician when everything is closed. Yeah. You're right. I just yeah. But we'll take the pizza anyway. That's right. Just for the right. Yeah, let's be clear. We will always take pizza and Chinese. <laughs> and tacos. Yeah. And Bill, um, I, I think you have a good point is if we are the people that you're looking to, but the expectation is to fix it or to do something like you said about the the behavior health person who has someone actually acting out, that's not really our role. Our role is to do evaluations and designate level of care well I, no i mean I, I i would say especially now with the with uh, the way the models changed a little bit yeah our, our job is to deal with that person who's in a heightened state whatever heightened state that may be okay but if you're going to say well i want i want you to make my kid not behave this way anymore that's not going to happen Forever. i want you to make this client more agreeable to taking their medications that's not what we do. That's long-term stuff. And I respect the people who, you know, who do that, but you need to understand that's not my role. You know, it really is like, I'm the paramedic. I'm here to patch them up, to keep them alive, to get them to long-term care. Mm-hmm. And then the long-term care people are supposed to take them from there. I'm just here as an emergency, emergency backup. When everything else goes to hell, I'm here to keep everybody safe and alive so they can get to that next level or at least set them up so they're, you know, they're pointed in the right direction. But my job isn't to do the long-term therapy, you know, whatever kind of therapy that may be, mental, physical, or whatever. You know, we're just here to kind of patch them up and go. Now, you guys said something in one of your episodes, I can't remember which one it was, but 
you said something that I was driving and I had to actually, and I do this very rarely, pull over the side of the road because it, I'm it was really, what did say? <laughs> it was really, it hit me uh, hard. We might have to bleep this out. <laughs> no, it's not one of those. Not one of those. Oh. Settle down, Steve. It shook me to the point because it, I don't want to say triggered, but it brought up so many memories of we were the ones that were the last resort because nobody knew what the f- to do with this person. Mm-hmm. And I felt that was so unfair for us as clinicians to get that and not have the support or like with Bill, the leadership to advocate for us so that we could do that for those persons we were seeing. When you guys said that, and it, and you know, I'm not ashamed to say I was crying because so many times that happened and it was so incredibly difficult and they were really complex cases and they took hours and had to turn it on from overnight to day. And sometimes they were still there when I came back on for ship that night. So we are there to do these things for people, but then we get those cases, everybody's hands off because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to do with it. I always thought that like, you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to deal with it. You don't want to deal with it, but you want me to deal with it. Even though we told you these are the, this is the options Mm -hmm. and that's it. I think when you're talking about like triggering, I think one of, I always had a hard time with people because it included knowledge of, I guess, knowing the substance abuse piece of it Mm -hmm. when parents would call about their adult children and they'd have sent them to the ER or there was an incident or there was something that happened they knew something bad was going to happen. And and that's true. You know, the person could drink for five more years and be in a car accident, could, you know, kill themselves, could, you know, there's all these varieties, but I couldn't do something in the moment. And it was so hard to explain to someone, you can't hospitalize someone against their will because they might have made bad decisions. And And it's not that it wasn't true or imminent, but I can't hold them against their will that's pretty powerful. Well, and I, and I think that I go back to, I think it was one of our episodes. I said, we're not quite first responders, but we're first responders in a half because we do deal with that population sometimes that no one else wants to deal with. And sometimes not even the first responders. He's all yours. She's all yours. And I, and again, it's not to defy anything that first responders do, obviously. And it's not to glorify us either but the truth is is that that's who we deal with and i always thought about it as a first and the joke that i was thinking about too and it's not a joke but you know like i was trying to think about like you know how many of us have seen people smear feces against the wall i mean that's one of the things that i come up with all the time (laughs) and at the end of the day we talked about leadership if someone wants to go into this job we've done a great job scaring the hell out of them and say this but how do we kind of identify someone who's going to be able to work in this field? And I'm going to turn to Bill first for this one, because Bill is someone who does hire people every day. And no, I'm still not willing to go work for you yet. Bill. All right. Maybe Susan will come work for me. <laughs> <laughs> I can relocate to yeah. Massachusetts. We'll talk after the show, Bill. <laughs> how, how, do I de- how do I identify those people? Well, I, I mean, I'll be very honest with you. If you come for an interview with me, the first thing I'm going to try to do is scare you away. Because I don't want you taking this job and being like, oh, well, you didn't tell me. I tell people straight out in the interview, if you've never, ever in your entire life ever even thought about being a firefighter, EMT, or cop, this is probably not for you. Because 
having interviewed people who I also then put into cruisers with the cops, because I had the, the cops ask me the same question. How are you going to know who's going to do all right in this cruiser? I said, because I look for the same kind of mindset that I've seen in firefighters, police and cops. Are these people first responders? You know, yeah, they're, they're social workers, psychologists, or whatever. But do they have the mindset that they run towards danger? And they're okay seeing the ugly. And we've certainly seen plenty of ugly. You need to make sure that somebody really understands that that is what they're signing up for. Now, is it like that all the time? Of course not. No, nothing ever is. But you do have to be prepared for it. You are going to see things that are going to bother you. You are going to see things that you are going to have to talk to your supervisor or at least somebody about. These things will just happen. I'm sure we all have various stories and the public may or may not find them interesting, but they're damaging stories. And these are thoughts, situations, and images that we have to learn to live with. Because some of them are not coming out of your mind. You're just going to learn how to work with them. Wow. You know, For that, I, re I refer you to Steve and his EMDR practices. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is what happens. So that's usually what I first look, what I usually first do and what I look for. I look for people who tell me they get easily bored. If they happen to tell me they have ADHD, that's a plus. Come on in. <laughs> you know, things like that. But really, I'm looking for people who are not afraid to have the conversation of, are you suicidal? You know, or maybe even more direct, are you thinking of killing yourself? Right. That's the first and step. And that's, that's a really good point, Bill. Asking that in using real words. And what it really means, because the person who is suicidal knows what it means. Yeah. And to ask someone that is very powerful, you know, and there's a couple of different ways you could do it. But really, I always thought to be honest and to be genuine, because if a person, you know, people say, oh, you trigger them. No, if a person is going to kill themselves or plans to kill themselves, nothing you can say is going to affect that or prompt that. Now. To ask someone, and after a while, you do it all the time. But but at the beginning, and even now in my practice, it's very powerful because you know it's it's tough. No, I, I was just gonna say, and I don't know where if I ever got specific training about it or just evolved into my own style. But I just thought honesty and very specific. I know how to assess it in my own mind. You know, a plan, an intent, likelihood to do it, past history, all those things that you do assess, but to think, to look someone straight in the eye and say, are you planning to hurt yourself or to kill yourself or to hurt someone else? And it's hard to hear an answer sometimes too. Right. And I think that's, I really think that's the crux of it. I always use the word kill because it's unambiguous what you're, what you're referring to. Okay. It's unambiguous and for the client, sometimes that can be triggering for them, and it should be, because maybe they didn't realize that's what their thought process was going towards, and it kind of shocks them into the moment. It's like, this is what you're saying. It also pulls away all the pretty language that people can hide behind when really what you mean is this. Additionally, I think the other thing it does is it makes it clear to the person I'm talking to. I am not afraid to have this conversation. 
I am not afraid of the answer you're going to give me. All right. I may not necessarily, you know, as I said earlier, I may not necessarily know how to resolve your issue. That may take somebody else, you know, with some other training, some other resources, but I'm not afraid to have this conversation with right here and now and convey that I sincerely am going to do whatever I can to help you. Because people always tell me, oh, well, you know, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing or to, if you approach the situation with sincerity and a genuineness that you want to help the person, I promise they are not going to remember a single faux pas that you make while trying to yeah. convey to them that you're trying to help them. They're not going to notice it. See, that's the abuse front. I really like that being genuine. I really like that. And people said, well, they could lie or this. People lied, lied to us all the time. Yeah. I mean, that was not a, that was not an unusual we expect uh, them to lie. To yeah, us. I, I, that was almost like, yeah, that's not the big deal yeah. about this. It, it's really more about how you, with that evaluation process, with the questioning, whatever your style is, is connect with a person so that you can find out what's what's happening and, and likely to happen. And then there's, of course, people who are vague. That's a whole other thing. But I would say 90% of the time people said, Yes, I will. Or no, I won't. Even if they have said, you know, and this is why. And, and another piece I always ask is, why wouldn't you? Yeah. They said, well, I'm not sure. Versus saying, well, because I'm Catholic and I would never do that. I know my mother would be devastated. I have two children at home. You know, there's some protective factors that you look at yeah. too. But there was a, such a small amount of people that actually had the intent and plan, I think, over 15 years to do it. I knew when someone was was going to act on it. To build on what was Bill, what Bill was saying in looking for people, because I've been part of those interviewing groups, you know, they would come in meet with the manager, but then they'd have to meet with a bunch of us who worked in the ER because they'd have to work with us. First of all, it's about having that conversation. Is it that they can build rapport in that room with us? Can you connect with us? If you can't fucking connect with us, how are you going to connect with someone who is very resistant to being an ER, who has had said or done things that make them something of a danger to themselves or someone else? Secondly, how do you ask someone if they're going to kill themselves? Every time I've asked that question, one of two things would happen. One would go, well, first, and they would talk about how they would you know, start talking to them and basically say, and then what were your plans to kill yourself? Because this is what I heard. Or they would get this look of like, I wouldn't say kill. I would say, you know, and like, no, no, done, done. You know, and that is actually something I took into my practice with me being trained like that is that's the first thing I talk about in my first session with every single client as part of informed consent. That's the number one thing people are worried about when they read that about suicidal ideation plan intent and compulsion to complete. Yeah. And when we talk about what that means, and it's like, I want you to tell me if you're feeling suicidal. I want you to tell me if you've got a plan to kill yourself, because I want to know, is this part of the chronic SI you've been having? Is this different? Or is this brand new? And what the hell has happened that this set this off for you? Let's talk about where this came from. And you guys talked about it in another episode where it's about, let's destigmatize talking about suicide. We need to talk about this. There are people walking around with chronic SI that are passive, but that's something also that people, when we've interviewed them, have to understand, too, is that if they say they have SI, but they don't plan on doing something, and then they're like, oh, well, they're lying. Not necessarily. Let's find out why they said it and where they came from, which goes back to what we said before about investigating 
what's going on for our clients. So and it's when we talk to these people we're coming to interview, all those things come into play when we're looking for someone to come in. And like Bill said, do you get bored easy? <laughs> if you get bored easy, you're in the right place. <laughs> yeah, it's never the same. It's always different. They're the same, mm-hmm. you know, scenarios, but it's always different. Yeah. Yeah. And then all I was hoping is one of you would say, you know, you grab the skin and see how thick it is. <laughs> and then judge from there but no one said that no that's your that's your kind of method there steve <laughs> your skittles let me see let me see how thick it is because i think that is a misnomer that you would say you have to be tough you have to be unfeeling or you have to be you don't care because i think that's really the opposite i think you care very deeply but with training and a skill set you have appropriate boundaries that's very different you also need to know how to put your your emotions to the side for the moment. I learned a long time ago while working on the ambulances. I had a mentor of mine, first serious call I went to. He's like, are you all right? Yeah, yeah. I think he goes, okay. He goes, pull it together now. We can freak out later. And the, the same is held true for uh, ES work in the EDs or community stuff. Go take care of business. As Bill Belichick says, do your job. And then we can put you back together afterwards. But there's somebody out there that needs your help right now. Go help them. And then we'll help you. You know, it's kind of the way, you know, the way we look at it. Mm-hmm. I've only had it twice where I actually had to step out of a room because it was just too overwhelming for me. I just, it, it was too fresh off of a personal experience that had happened that was very deeply affecting to me. And I was the only full fucking overnight clinician and I had no call for a backup. So I basically said, you know, I got to go check on something. I'll be right with you in a few minutes. And at that point I walk out and I grabbed my nurse that we'd have a nurse back in the CSU that when we bring people back to our section, they were doing the medical part of it for them, the psychiatric part of it, and just sat down and said, oh, shit, this is what's going on. And I would just bleh, probably cry, get mad, and then pull it, my shit together and go back out and do it again. Yep. Only twice it's ever happened, but it was hard. Yeah. It was very difficult. But that is part of the gig. You have to, you're there to do your job. Right. And I think that I, and, you know, maybe I've talked about it on the podcast. Maybe you guys know the story. I had a pretty bad negative outcome happen when I worked at a jail doing the suicide watches. And one of our medical director, and I'll always give credit where credit is due, Dr. Chris Gordon, took me to lunch maybe three, four days later. I brought my pager. This is how long ago it was. And my computer, because I'm like, well, I'm probably getting fired, so might as well bring my stuff. And Chris is like, yeah, you don't need that. So we have a decent lunch. We never talk about it. And then we're about to leave the restaurant. And he says, oh, where are you going now? So I'll go back to the crisis team. And I said, where are you going? He's like, well, I'm going to go do see a few clients in my outpatient office if I make it. I'm like, what? I'm like, And if you make it to the crisis team, like, what? Well, we don't know. Maybe we'll get stuck in traffic. Maybe we'll get into a car accident. Maybe we'll have to answer to an emergency somewhere else. I don't know. And I'm like, is he threatening me? That's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> Neither of us will make it out of here. I'm like, he's, geez, what's going to happen here? He turned to me and he says, you can't predict what's going to happen in 15 minutes. How you can predict people's behavior 15 minutes later is unheard of. 
And that was probably the most grounding story I've ever heard. And I give credit to Chris Gordon because it was tough. I had, I, I literally thought I was getting fired. It was a very tough situation. And I tell people all the time that, you know, if you could predict human behavior in five minutes, never mind 15 minutes, in five minutes, you are a better person than I am. And so being able to get that, that's the question and the stuff that I always found would be helpful talking to crisis teams because that's the stuff that really works with that. And how you, and the other thing that I want to throw in, we, because we were talking about it just a few seconds ago, you know, you said, go to see Stevie does EMDR, but how do we deal with the vicarious trauma? And I know, Bill, you've answered that one before in a different way, but is there anyone who wants to offer some suggestions? Because whether you hear story number one, story number 27 or story number 2700, at one point we start getting affected by what's being said. I know I do. And, you know, I joked around about the thick skin, but ultimately, how do we deal with vicarious trauma? I see a therapist. I've been seeing a therapist, somebody who is specific to working with therapists. Um, If they've got a background in ER crisis work, so much the better. But I, if not, then I look for those that are working with first responders, law enforcement, hospital staff. And that just happened to be the cohort that I see now in private practice. It helps to have somebody who has been in that situation or understands that situation that is not going to sit there and negatively react when you bring up the story of this is what happened and I can't shake it right now. So for me, that's the first and foremost is I go see a therapist and then go do yoga and then eat a lot of tacos. Mm. What about you guys, Kara or Bill, whoever wants to go? I started boxing. Yeah. That really gets it out. <laughs> I've I've therapy, you know, I have cat therapy, dog therapy, I foster. So having a robust outside life is very helpful. And I think the camaraderie with the team when I was working was helpful. I mean, to know that you had other people that were going through the same thing and that you weren't alone, I think that was a big piece of it. And that, you know, we talked about how the use of, you know, the dark humor and not always feeling in crisis, even if it was a crisis, I guess. You know, you get into this like mode. I think you were talking about all these things happening at once, Susan, and you're just almost just manage it one thing at a time. And and maybe that's why I'm kind of good at that in other areas too, is the, I can divide and conquer. What's the most pressing thing? What's the priority? Let's go through that first and then let's get through it. So, you know, usually de-escalation, that's another skill that I think I've taken away from that. And I think it's priceless in a lot of situations. Your instinct is to, blow it all up but de-escalation gets you what you want in the situation usually almost anywhere what about you bill um well i know you want me to say i drink heavily (laughs) please 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 isolate that i want to do a drop (laughs) (laughs) um no i i actually do use a lot of mindfulness techniques i do a, a lot of meditation i've tried going to therapists and that usually works for me because, in my opinion, they're just much more interested in my stories than helping me work through my stories. Mm-hmm. So I've really, you know, I've really relied on colleagues I've met through emergency services who, you know, know what I'm talking about in general. If it, in some cases they even know the specific people that I'm talking about that this happened with. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember Joe. We Joe did this. It's like, yeah, well, this happened to Joe now. So I think I rely on that. 
fortunately, I have enough longevity in this field that I know a number of clinicians who either I've worked with, trained, or whatever, that if I'm, you know, having a difficult problem, I have, uh, you know, I have a nice supportive community that I can reach out to and just say, hey, somebody help me process this. Um, I think that's usually what helps get me through a lot of the stuff. Okay. Well, as we wrap up again, we went for an hour. This went by again, fairly fast. One of the things that I, I, we've talked about how the clinicians and all that, but you know, we talk about maybe we've never really explored. I think maybe once we talked about the experience of a client, a consumer, a patient, whatever they're calling it this week, as Bill said so nicely earlier. And I agree with him a hundred percent. I don't give a crap. It's a person. But I think that it might be interesting for like, maybe for us to just kind of like, what's kind of the advice you would give to someone who actually shows up to an ER and is looking for the help and how to get the help they need. And I'm going to go again. I'm going to start off with Kara on this one. First of all, I would say do not go on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. <laughs> um, so what's I left? Lose, lose. <laughs> don't, don't go on any day ending in Y. At noon. Yeah. <laughs> not 7 o'clock or 3 o'clock. Uh, but I think, and I have done this before. I've talked to other people and I said, this is the best way to get these resources that you're looking for. But I also sometimes say to people, what are you looking to get out of it? Because if you're looking to get tons of services at that time, it's sometimes unrealistic to say, go to the ER, wait for five hours. You know, it depends what's going on as well. So, I mean, to be fair, and then you expect to go into a inpatient unit that may not happen. So sometimes I kind of suss out what people are looking for. And if they genuinely are saying, you know, my daughter is saying they, they're under 18, they want to hurt themselves. She's been scratching. She has a history. She cut herself today, has an intent and a plan. I would say, call the crisis team first. I would let them know that, you know, you have a couple options. If you don't feel like you can keep them safe at home, then arrange to meet, say that you're going to go over to the local ER, get the medical clearance, and then really advocate to the clinician who you want them to call. Because I think in our day, and this is a while ago, you know, it's really important to talk to the original reporter, whoever brought them in or whoever made the, the original call, get the medical stuff. And if a police officer was involved or police get that information. And if there's a therapist or psychiatrist, get their information. So I think those pieces are really important. I know that, as you said, Susan and, and Bill, I know it's a tough place right now. It's everybody's doing a lot with, with no support, but the ideal would be to advocate for as much information as possible to get the best disposition for the client. That's what I would recommend. Okay. Thank you. And Susan, you want to add to that or? Well, I agree with Kara. It depends on where you're going. We have actually had doctor's offices refer their patients to us because you can get your meds through the ER. No, we don't do that. If you're having significant issues that put you at eminent risk, meaning you want to kill yourself, you want to kill someone else, you have a plan, you have compulsion to complete, get your ass to the ER. We can help you with that. If you're looking to bring your child in to put them in patient to teach them a lesson, to behave themselves, no. 
you need to do outpatient work as a family and maybe individual therapist for you as a parent to handle what's going on with your child. I just think there's this unrealistic expectation when people roll into the ER, they're going to get triaged. They're going to go right back to psych and there we go. But like everything else, we're understaffed. We may not have beds. You know, if you truly do need an inpatient bed, as you guys have explained in previous episodes, we might not have it. I know that I have called between the two states of Iowa and Illinois and gone as far out west and east as possible and north and south to find a bed yeah. and found nothing. So oh, you may be spending days in the ER to get what you need. My best advice is get into outpatient services before it becomes a crisis. Mm -hmm. If this is something that's chronic for a person, get on your meds, stay compliant, go to your therapy sessions, go to your group sessions, talk to your sponsors, talk to your mentors, talk to people who are part of your support system. Obviously, if it's an emergency, get your ass to the ER. But there is so much we can't do because we just we, either we're prohibited by law or we just don't have the resources or the staff to do it or we don't have the beds. For people, again, if you're in an emergency situation, absolutely come in. If there's a question about, I don't know if my child really is suicidal or not, but they've been cutting and this looks worse than before, bring them in. We'll do the assessment. We'll talk to our psychiatrist to figure out what they want to do for orders. We'll go from there. But if you're looking to get your meds refilled because they've lapsed and your doctor said that's not going to happen. So I agree with Kara. It depends on what's going on. But my Ambien and my Ativan and my Percocet all ran out today. So all I'm going to be rushing. Yeah, all at the same time. And they were stolen. That's it. And they were just filled four days ago. So 30 days worth of stuff is gone. Boy, that's Here. the most unlucky person alive. I, I Thank you. And I appreciate you writing that prescription. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bill, I'll finish with, I want to hear from you and I'll, I'll add a little bit myself. I, I think the best advice I could give somebody don't lie to us. Don't embellish. Just tell us what's going on. I've seen people come in and either they, their families, loved ones, whoever, they kind of embellish the story, make it sound more dramatic, uh, just to make it sound more dramatic, thinking that that's somehow going to get them, you know, better care or faster care. It's not. If anything, it might take you down a road you did not intend to go down. Especially too, you know, you came in and th after three days of waiting in the ED for a psych unit, you say, you know what, I'm not suicidal anymore. It's like, well, so were you lying then or are you lying now just because you want to get other, which, which, which is it? It brings up a lot of things. So I would always say, just, just be honest. I don't care about your drug use in that I'm not pressing legal charges against you. I just need to know what, what you have inside you. You know, what are you dealing with? That That's what I need to know. You know, I'm not going to judge you for, you know, your drug use or, or whatever else brought you to the ED. I'm not judging you for that, but I do need to know. Because knowing that helps me decide, or at least helps me recommend to you different avenues we can go down. But the just like these other two ladies said, the less knowledge I have means the less options I can give you. Right. And I, I think that I go back to a lot of what has been said. I thought you were going somewhere with this, Susan. But the other thing, too, is be realistic with your expectations. Mm -hmm. And what the, one of the things is that you're not going to go to a psych hospital. And in five days, you're going to feel like a new person. Even if I have the bed on a Sunday at 5.13 p.m., which will never happen. 
But the point is, is that I think that I hear a lot of people like, oh, they're going to help me at the hospital. Hell to the no. We've we've talked about this before. But to me, it, the best advice is start prevention. Reach out to therapist. Don't wait till it gets as bad. And sometimes it does get bad and absolutely go to the emergency room. That is perfect and be truthful and look for the services that you can get. Because what I tend to, I, I've had family members, I've had a lot of people in the community ask me questions and they say, what, what do you recommend, Steve? I said, there's, there's CSU beds. There is partial hospitalizations. There is a bunch of services that are intermediary that you will not need to go to the emergency room. And those don't need inter in interventions from the emergency department. This is something you can reach out to. So for me, as much as it is sometimes hard for people, I don't wait till my arm is falling off to go to the ER and say, all right, well, don't put it back together with a couple of like screws. No, I, my, my arm hurts and it's been clicking for a while. So you go see your, you see a, a doctor, you see a, an orthopedic, you're going to see someone who's going to do some prevention or help you before your arm is falling off. And I think that that's the advice I would give to people is that mental health typically doesn't show up out of nowhere. It's a progressive thing. And so getting those prevent, preventive and I think that they call it the uh, sequential intercept model and in, uh the community justice programs. I, I think that that's what I would recommend. Absolutely. You agree with me? Yeah. We, we want to take care of this stuff uh, upstream. Right. No. Right. Where it gets to don't let it. Yeah. Don't let it get to crisis mode. There's no reason to, I mean, yeah. of course, you know, I'm sitting from a position of privilege being a white chick um, and I have a job and I'm not at the lower end of the socioeconomic status. There are a lot of things get in people's way. There's a lot of obstacles that they have no control over. But there's still some way to get help before it becomes crisis. As, as far as I know, every community across the state, even if it's poorly funded, still has some way to get people connected. Try it before it becomes a crisis. And I have Bill as my uh, emotional friend, so I, I, he helps me out if I'm going into a crisis. I'm his emotional Steve, you're my emotional Canadian friend. Yeah, I'm his, yes. I'm his emotional, uh, <laughs> emotional servant. So we have an Iowa, we have an Iowan emotional friend, right? You got me. <laughs> Come on over, we'll eat tacos and talk about it. Right. Oh. <laughs> so where do we reach all of you? I know you said it at the beginning, but what's the best way to reach you, for example, Susan? Um, you can get a hold of me at cofaultcounselingservices.com on the internet for any kind of in-person services or telehealth services. You can also find my podcast, Rules. It's on just about anything that has podcasts on it. And you can also find me on Instagram as The Sweary Therapist. Imagine that. Right. And uh, just just for the record, your daughter did not mention my podcast as one of her favorites, so I have a beef with her at one point. Just so. <laughs> Don't you worry. I'll get the two of you on together and you can chat about it. Bill, what about you? How do we reach you if we want to reach you? I can be reached at buildwinnells.com. It's just my name because I'm not that creative. You know, I'm available for, um, you know, private practice counseling, you know, or if people are interested in the software that I develop for helping to run emergency teams. Uh, that's at 508tech.com, but I should be able to be reached either one for um, consultation for you know, whatever you think I might I might be helpful with. The bell is going off, so I think we're, we're about done. Kara, what about you? You can reach me through my website, com. 
uh, or 508-834-7742 is a business line. And I offer probably just like everybody else about a 15 minute consult for free and just see, you know, what's going on. And if I am a good fit or, you know, I could uh, maybe refer you to someone else. I just had a call from someone yesterday and they said they called a bunch of people and I was the only person that responded back. And I, and she was looking to use insurance, which I don't take. So I referred her to another clinician and just that little hand holding because there's enough people for all of us to be sharing and, you know, referring to each other and saying, you might like, you know, Susan's style, or you might like Steve's style or Bill's style, different that it's different than mine, or they have something that could support you in a, in a more positive way. So I think it's enough for everybody. And I do appreciate everyone. This was a great conversation. I must say that this was my first time doing a four-way interview for the podcast and it went really, really well. So I want to thank you guys. Very well. Thank you for having me. Great guest. Yeah, thank you. I'll see you guys soon. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, that concludes episode 72 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. Thank you, Susan, Kara, and Bill. It was a great conversation about emergency work, as well as the stuff that goes on and the unique challenges that we have. It seems like a theme this uh, season in regards to unique challenges. But episode 73 will be about another chapter in my book called A Beautiful Mind Needs to be Nurtured. So I hope you listen to that one too. Please like subscribe or follow this podcast on your favorite platform a glowing review is always helpful and as a reminder this podcast is for information educational and entertainment purposes if you are struggling with a mental health or substance abuse issue please reach out to a professional counselor or therapist for consultation